Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. We have Jeff Rimsberg back for our 10th podcast. Jeff, welcome back. Thanks. One of the biggest complaints so far is you don't talk enough, so we need a little more out of you today. Well, you don't give me any chance. That's the problem. We're going to do a Q&A in between episodes. So y'all have been sending lots of great feedback to feedback at com. So we're going to read maybe half a dozen questions. We'll see how many you get to with time and just answer them as we go along. But before we start, would love to ask you guys a huge favor. Take 10 seconds. You can put the podcast down now. Uh, leave us a review. We've had over 50,000 downloads, which is pretty awesome. Only got about 20 reviews. So that's like 0.001% of you guys. So we put tons of hours into this, many thousands of dollars. Um, would love for you guys to give us a little feedback. Doesn't matter if it's good or bad, just feedback on iTunes. On that note, we'd also be curious whether or not anyone finds the transcripts valuable. Yeah. If you could let us know. So we've been posting transcripts on the show notes in addition to all the links. I don't know if anyone reads that or not. Anyway, if you do and you love it, let me know. Otherwise, uh, let's get started. Let's uh, fire away. Uh, first question, Jeff? Yeah. Uh, this time, what we'll try to do, as you mentioned, is go through a lot more. We got held up on that one bond question last time. So we'll try to pop through as many of these as we can. All right. Number one, just reading uh, as they come. I'm curious what your thoughts are regarding ETFs with very low volume and liquidity. I've stayed away from them in the past simply because I want to own something I can easily sell if necessary. However, there are a bunch of quant ETFs I would like to own, but the volume is basically non-existent. Is this fear unfounded? So ETF liquidity, you got to remember, is that ETF is just a basket of securities. So stocks, Spider is just a basket of S&P 500 stocks. And so really, when you talk about liquidity, and we're t let's talk about someone who wants to put in 50 million tomorrow, theoretically, they want to put into a fund that only has 10 million. Most people think, oh, you put 50 million into a small cap stock, it's going to move the stock huge. Well, with an ETF, because of the arbitrage mechanism, there's liquidity providers out there that if you're going to put in a big order and you go to Jane Street or KCG or Cantor, one of these big shops, you can almost always execute within a few cents of net asset value. Now, the challenge is you need to go through a desk. So if you are executing through Schwab or E-Trade or whatever, you probably need to call them up. But it's really the liquidity, the underlying. So if you're going to execute Spider and put in $100 million, no sweat. If you're going to execute something and maybe low liquidity corporate bonds or emerging markets, small cap value stocks that don't trade much, the liquidity provider may say net asset value plus five cents, whatever it may be. So a second level would be, all right, if you're actually just trading ETFs through your broker and you're only going to buy a thousand shares, hundred shares, 10 shares, whatever it may be, all that really matters is that just use limit orders, right? If, if it's super liquid like Spider, that's fine. You can mark it in. Otherwise, use limit orders. It'll eventually get executed. Just don't be in, in a huge rush. And chances are, if you're dealing with an ETF, you're 
unlikely to have as many sort of gap ups or gap downs that could really mess with you since you're having so many in the underlines, correct? Yeah. I mean, again, it goes back to what, what it's trading and tracking. Obviously, the more assets, the better. If something only has 5 million in AUM, likely it will be less liquid quoted display, but not less liquid true liquidity. And so we've, you know, we know plenty of shops that put in 50 million into, into what you would consider a non-liquid ETF uh, with no sweat. All right. Second question. I'm 30 and have a decent amount of money to invest, the majority of which is in U.S. equities. I think I understand what you preach about global asset allocation, but how wise is it to invest in things I barely understand? I'm of the mindset of Peter Lynch, and I tend to buy what I know. Do you think that at some point global asset allocation is not good for investors if the fact that they are involved in things they don't understand means they're more likely to make rash decisions? Should have this Q&A with Wes here. Don't get him started on Peter Lynch. But uh, So there's a couple questions in there, but the main one is how do I invest in what I know or don't know? So first, congrats to this reader for being 30 and having a great portfolio. You know, that's that's a big step up on most. Usually most people in their 20s or younger, a lot of the personal finance decisions matter a lot more than actually the investing decisions. But the fact that you're getting started and having investments already, kudos. And the good news is you've probably outperformed greatly because you had a U.S. stock allocation uh, with that home country bias we always talk about. But talking about what you know, and here's kind of a good example. So a lot of people have this sort of mirage of what they understand. And so you'll talk to someone who invests in a stock. You know, maybe it's Apple, for example, and they'll say, yeah, you know, I use, I got a Mac, I got an iPhone, I got an iPad, yada, yada, and say, okay, well, have you read the last eight 10Ks and Qs? Have you read their annual reports for the last decade? We say, well, well, no, I, you know, it's Peter Lynch, I understand the product. Well, understanding the product, you can have, this is a big distinction, you can have a great company is not the same thing as a great stock. So you could have a great company, world changing like Tesla, that's super expensive, or you could have a really crappy company that's actually really cheap. And so that big distinction, but going back to what you know, in our book, Invest with a House, there's a quote in the beginning, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to have to summarize it, but it's where Lee Ainsley, who's the hedge fund manager of Maverick, and Lee was actually a UVA guy well before me, but an engineering guy, and randomly, all of the undergrads at UVA actually have to write a thesis. So I'm probably the only person on the planet other than his advisor who's read Lee Ainsley's thesis, uh, which is pretty funny because it's printed on that like old school perforated computer paper from from the 80s. Anyway, let's just say he wasn't an A-plus student. So he manages many billions of money now, world, world-class money manager. Anyway, so Lee was talking about an experience where he came up under Julian Robertson, one of the top hedge fund managers of all time at Tiger. And the quote goes something like, he was walking down the hall and Julian stops him and says, hey, you know, what's your opinion right now on XYZ stock? You know, Lee says, you know, I'm bullish, whatever. He says, and who's the CFO? And he starts stammering. He says, I don't know. And the whole point was being that unless you know everything about a company, you know, this illusion of knowing something, of having this Peter Lynch mindset, I think is really tough. You know, and another example is how much do you really know about you buy the S&P 500? I think a much more important on this asset allocation allocation level is having a respect for history and understanding how asset classes behave and having realistic expectations. So, you know, the, this individual who wrote in says, I most of my portfolio in equity say, okay, 
Maybe you know everything about these stocks, but FYI, stocks have had an 80% drawdown. Can you sit through that? Is that an okay allocation you to go through now that you said you had a big allocation? So I, I think um, unless you're doing pure security analysis with all your time, then you got to remember who you're up against, these best hedge fund managers in the world, best quant algorithms out there. I think the, the Peter Lynch methodology, while fun and a, a good way to keep you interested in stocks, is actually pretty tough to execute. And isn't a global asset allocation actually, in and of itself, it's a bit of a defense from what we really don't know. You're you're going back to the old, and I just interrupted you, so I'm already doing the the <laughs> let Jeff talk problem. Yeah, so it's it's a bit of you know the kind of Vanguard always talks about just being average. So you're reducing the outlier both on the good and bad side, events and diversification. So it's not just investing in U.S. companies, but you're getting Chinese, Greek, Russian, Brazil, France, German, everything in between, plus bonds and real assets and everything else. A U.S.-centric allocation, you end up some pretty pretty steep concentration risk. Okay. It's actually a bit of a tack on. Somebody else wrote in with this question, but it applies here. It says, how should uh, millennials balance low expected returns, including ZERP, U.S. CAPE, etc.? with the need to invest young and early. So one of the common, I think, mistakes that people often talk about is investing based on age. And so they'll say young people should invest all their money in stocks because they have a long-term time horizon, they have a ton of human capital. And in general, that's right on paper. The biggest problem, again, is you may have a 20-year-old who is really a nervous Nelly that they see their stocks go up and down. They go through a 50% bear market and they're like, I can't take this. This is, this is horrifying for me. This is very emotional. Whereas you could have an 80 year old who says, no, look, I have this pension in social security. I need my allocation to be 90% in stocks because I can take risk here. You know, whereas most people should say that 80 year olds should be in CDs. So age is a bit of a, a false benchmark to start from I think red herring for for a risk level yeah um, I think it's okay starting point but you really you know this is the benefit of an advisor that you can't really necessarily get from a questionnaire and maybe these improve eventually but I think it's really hard to just determine someone's risk tolerances particularly if it's a young person who hasn't lived through a bear market yet you can't teach that you can't teach on paper what it feels like to lose your job and then to watch your portfolio go, go down by 50% and still say it's rational to put 90 to 100% of your money in stocks. And there's even some writers out there, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but he says actually young people should not only buy 100% in stocks, they should lever to 150%. And on paper, that math may make sense. I think it's really tough to live with. Now, the, the question I think was really asking, how do we balance you know, starting young with low expected returns. And we do expect low returns in the U.S. We expect, you know, bonds are going to yield a percent and a half. U.S. stocks, maybe four or five percent. Well, again, that's the beauty of diversification. So you're getting into foreign assets, which we expect to be much cheaper. We think emerging markets, commodities are setting the stage for, for much higher expected returns. So one, have a reasonable outlook. So don't, there's a going crazy just thinking about this, but State Street just had another presentation, the survey where they looked at 400 institutions, asked them what their expected returns are, and the average was 10.9%. And in my mind, that is just absolutely frigging delusional. There is no chance those funds are going to print 11% a year. I mean, if you look at this fiscal year right now, I, I'm guessing there's hardly any institutions that do better than 2%. In, in uh, fiscal year, most of them end in June uh, 2016. So one is have realistic expectations. Two, 
simply start early and, and start to dollar cost average. So a much bigger success will uh, be determined by just starting early and, and putting in money every month, every quarter, every year, particularly into tax deferred investments rather than starting valuations because valuations matter less the much longer the time frame. So will U.S. stocks have lower returns? Yeah, I think so. But one, you're blended with foreign stocks and two, you're have the beauty of having 60 years ahead of you. You know, it's good to start early, have no rush, but certainly have muted expectations, I think, in, in U.S. stuff for the next next five, 10 years. So you, you suggest uh, setting up a recurring schedule and just doing it automatically of depositing more money versus potentially, let's call it pooling your money, and then you wait until there's a trigger, like say the cape gets below 12, and then sort of dump it all in then. You know, the, the, the coffee can style portfolio, which is these old school portfolios where they talk about you just buy something, and essentially you never sell it. I think that's a fun idea. And I have no problem with that in general. It's a great way to invest where, you know, each month. Um, so yes, there's automated ways to do it. But particularly for a young person trying to do the timing, say on US stocks, I think it's problematic. Now, if US stocks were trading, let's say at a cape of 40, then I would say absolutely yes, actually, because when you get to a certain level, common sense takes over and says, look, there's just no point in putting your assets at risk. I mean, they're trading it at a high valuation, but it's not awful. You know, a, a world diversified portfolio is still going to have decent returns, but certainly would, would I try to time U.S. stocks? I, you know, no, but they're not horrific valuation right now. Okay. So if a 25-year-old invests right now in a global asset allocation portfolio, uh, should he be looking to rebalance once a year or does the rebalance depend on age? The fun thing about the global market portfolio and most people scratch their head of this is that technically it never rebalances. So if you were to buy the global market portfolio today, you never need to rebalance it ever because that's the global market portfolio. If stocks go down, it just means the global market portfolio has less in stocks. Now, practically speaking, if you come up with an allocation percent policy portfolio, like a global asset allocation market portfolio, I think you want to rebalance that because it gives you the added benefit of uh, what Rob Arnott calls over-rebalancing, meaning you're tilting towards value because you're always buying what's going down. You're always selling what's going up and you never get a too stretched allocation in some weird way. So yeah, I think once a year is fine. So if you're taxable, you can rebalance based on cash flows. If it's tax exempt, you can look at it once a year and if things have uh, moved very much, rebalance. But really, you could even rebalance every three or five years, and it's not going to make much of a difference. Okay. So be very, be very tax mindful is the, is the big part. All right. Well, good thing we're talking about allocations. Uh, the next question is, how much allocation should you put behind your best idea or opportunity? You always hear Charlie Munger or Manish Pabrai mention betting big when the great opportunity arises. But what is considered big? I actually had lunch with Monish a few weeks ago. We had some dim sum. If you've ever been to Din Tai Fung, which is an incredible dumpling restaurant, they have one down in OC next to him. But they also have one in San Gabriel Valley, which is funny because I remember the first time we went to it, my father it was, you know, this is a very authentic Chinese restaurant. And he's chatting with the waiter and he says, you know, I would like what you would order, the soup. And, you know, I, what, what the locals would order. And the guy's kind of shaking his head and he's like, you know, basically saying like, you don't want this soup. And he's like, no, 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 come on. And he's pretty adventurous. And it comes out and it was literally a bowl of broth 
with a chicken leg in it. When I, and when I mean chicken leg, not like a drumstick, like a talon, like a, you know, just like, just like a leg. And so he kind of just chuckled a little bit and says, okay, I deserve that. I said, like, well, you better eat it. Anyway, they have great soup dumplings. So anyway, what was the question? How much do you put in your best idea? Okay. So this is, this is a, a good question when it comes to any sort of betting. And you can think of gambling. You can think of sports betting. You can think of investing. You have to have an expected win rate and expected value you'll get from this bet. And investing, one of the challenges is you don't really know over time for an asset allocation. So you diversify, you can tilt toward expected values. For the most part is you're not making large bets in asset allocation. Now, take a step back. Let's say you're an active trader or you're doing managed futures or you're doing active bets. In that case, you can have large concentrated positions. And so question, you know, from mathematically speaking, you can read books like uh, Ralph Vince's books. We'll get him on the podcast one day. Uh, I'm blanking on the title of the book, but it's something like The Mathematics of Money Management. Talks a lot about Optimal F and what what are the... Is Optimal F? God, I'm blanking. I don't know. It's Monday morning. Uh, about the, the ratios you can... Uh, mathematical formulas you can develop for what's the ideal allocation given your expected value or, or something like blackjack. You know, if you count cards and you have a slight edge, what's the amount you bet? Well, in a, in a game like blackjack, I think the, the bet ends up being it's not, it shouldn't be higher than 5% of bankroll. But if you go to a blackjack table, how many times do you watch people that have $100 on the table and they're betting $50 bets? I mean, they're going to go broke eventually no matter what. But let's say you're doing a, a portfolio, and it also depends on the correlation. If you get a stock portfolio, you know, and you're making very large bets, look at Bruce Bar- Berkowitz or a lot of these active managers, they make these huge bets. And I think that's great, but you're going to have very outlier outcomes. So it's kind of like what you're comfortable with. Are you comfortable with putting all your eggs in one basket? What's the famous quote? You know, put all your eggs in one basket and just watch that basket. So that's fine, but it also goes a little bit, not just the mathematical expectation, but your psychological comfort level. Can you live with, you know, if you have 10 bets on the table, one of them going to zero? Most people could, could live with that. Could you live with having two 50% bets and one going to zero? Probably not. So it's, uh, it's, that's kind of a squishy answer for me personally. I would never want to have something more than, say, of a portfolio more than like 5% just because it's something that would start to make me, I, I would have trouble sleeping and I like sleeping, so I would start to worry too much. But for other people, you know, they're totally okay. I mean, a great example, there's a quote that says, this is Buffett again, that says the two biggest risks to a portfolio, or maybe it's Munger, I can't remember, are, are liquor and, and leverage. But leverage is one... There's a great example. The richest guy, one of the top five richest guys in the world, worth over 30 billion, maybe five years ago, is now bankrupt. And this is Batista in Brazil because he had essentially outsized concentrate exposure to one asset, his company and family of companies, and then leveraged it. It's a good example of just not people using too much leverage when they're young or small, but also, I mean, literally the five richest person people in the world, how can you not be like, you know what? I've got 30 billion. Let's dial this back a little bit. I'm not going to have concentration risk. So I think it's a tough question to answer. I mean, it's it's two sides, same coin. If you want a concentrated portfolio that's going to outperform, that has to be big enough to matter. So you can't, you can't have 400 names because it's not going to do anything. We talked a little bit about this, I think on the, on the both the West and Patrick podcast where 
if you're a quant guy, maybe 50 names, you know, 20 is probably, probably the minimum. Uh, so 5% for me. That was, a, we're starting to bleed into long answers for these questions. I got to try to remember to keep them, keep them short. I mean, this makes me think of, uh, looking at a portfolio less by different asset classes and almost more in terms of risk tolerance. Like you'd want X percent or 80, called 80% and very conservative safer ideas and then you sort of swing for the fences with five percent but, but is that getting into like risk parity no like that's what? like a that's like a taleb barbell approach and that's totally fine the challenges of course is that you know it depends on correlation so you used to have all these bank risk models value at risk and all these other risk models and, and one of the challenges is if the correlations change so like in 08 People, for example, haven't seen that market environment since the Great Depression. And so they didn't think that all those assets could decline at the same time. And they ended up doing that. So there's, it, it, it gets complicated, but in general, you know, I, I think for me, I wouldn't want more than 5% any, any one bet. Okay. Uh, another question is about. And, 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 let me let me add one more. Is we have, <laughs> we have a good common friend, very wealthy money uh, in, uh, investor trader, and I remember listening to him talk maybe a year or two ago, and he's like, I'm making a huge bet on gold or whatever it was. But let's say it's gold. In my head, I'm thinking this entire audience thinks he's putting like half of his net worth. He's like, this is huge bet for me. And someone either asked in the Q&A or I asked later, I can't remember. And I said, you know, hey, out of curiosity, what what is a huge bet for you? And he's like, oh, I'm increasing my 2% allocation to 4 Mm-hmm. You know, for him, that was a huge right. bet. For most people, raise. yeah, most people think that would be a rounding error. So it depends. So for someone, you know, when they think a huge allocation, they may think going all in 100%. You know, most investors don't think that way. Okay. Uh, moving on. Along the lines of benchmarking returns of active managers with factors, how does that account for the truly exceptional returns by some managers? And the the reader, excuse me, the uh, listener wrote in a couple names, which I'll hold off. But he's claiming that one manager has audited returns of 42% for almost 30 years. So how is that explainable? If you remember in some of the last podcasts, we looked at the, the really impossibility of 20% returns and North sustainable over time. It just, you end up owning essentially the entire market. You know, if you're, if you're a Buffett and you compound at 20%, you're one of the richest person in the world, right? If someone's compounding at 40, it means they're the richest person in the world in a much shorter time frame. So, uh, probably unlikely or, you know, the guys that you see audited, it, it may be because they found a certain very, let's call it non-efficient niche where they can do it, but they can only do it with maybe like a hundred grand. So I know a few people that manage some portfolios. They do it with, they're like literally, Meb, it's not scalable north of a million bucks. So yes, the, the smaller amounts could be more inefficient. There's no way that exists on a large platform. Otherwise, He's the most successful hedge fund manager in the world. Well, he's, they're claiming 30 years, which seems improbable. If you're going to sustain that, your your capital is going to get so large. Yeah, you would. if you years. started with 100 grand, you probably have 50 billion by now. So you'd be the richest person in the world. Again, it could be something particularly niche that's not scalable. And another pet peeve, you know, I, I should write a book called How to Design Market and Build the Perfect Track Record Legally. You know, because there's a lot of ways to do this. But what you see with a lot of funds, particularly the private hedge funds and, and CTAs, is they'll have a monster year somewhere in the first one, two, three years. And that's that's 
kind of the prescription because otherwise if they have a monster terrible years they're out of business right so they'll have a monster year where they'll do 50 or 150 percent and then you'll see them dial back the volatility as they get bigger as the assets get bigger either they get gets more fit the market's more efficient or they just can't allocate to the ideas anymore and and this is one of the challenges of talking about when to fire a good manager we did a post a couple years back called has david einhorn lost his mojo you know really famous great investor at Greenlight, we looked at his 13F tracking performance in the 2000s. And for the first seven years, and this mirrors Buffett, first seven years of the 2000s, I mean, he beat the market by something like 20, 25% a year. But assets grew. And now he's this huge money manager and he's underperformed by 5% a year since then. Now, is that because he spends all his time playing poker? Is it because, you know, he has a ton of AUM and simply can't scale it? Is it because he's moved into global macro and starting to do a bunch of macro trades? So style drift, you know, I don't know. Or is it simply because value has been out of favor for seven years and it'll return uh, in time? I don't know. We don't, you know, invest based on Einhorn. He's not someone I have money with, but I'm just saying this is a challenge of investing in money manager. And that same study I just talked about, I'm going to turn red starting to talk about this. When it queried those institutions, they said, I wish I had the right exact wording, but it said, how much runway, oh no, how much, how many years of underperformance will you tolerate? And tolerate being the, the word that set me off. Will you tolerate for a active or, pa- or smart beta manager? For active, 89% said they would only tolerate one or two years. And for passive, it was 99% said they would only tolerate one or two years of underperformance. And this literally explains why that one stat explains everything wrong with our industry. These 400 managers manage a trillion and they alone don't even understand active management. You know, that could go seven, eight years of underperforming and still be a totally viable strategy or asset class. And so it's kind of dismaying to read from institutions. I would expect it more on individuals, but it just goes to show that they make the same dumb mistakes as, as everyone else. It reminds me of the story you tell about Buffett and how he was underperformed. Was it seven of the last nine years? Yeah, same thing. So I mean, that's his 13F clone portfolio. But yeah, so the, the his stock portfolio has underperformed seven of the last nine, but had you followed it since 2000, you would have outperformed, including this period, by five percentage points a year, which would have beat 98% of all mutual funds. So it's an example of a strategy that would have been the, one of the top 2% of strategies over the last 15 years, but you would have had to sit through the last seven years of lean times, and most people can't do that. They can't sit through one or two. So mm-hmm. seven or eight, forget about it. But that's one of the reasons why he's been so successful, is he's been able to stick through his methodology for for not just five or 10 years, but for decades. Back to Einhorn, I just read an article about how he uh, took a bath on Macy's recently. They just got out of that position and he lost a pretty substantial amount on that. Well, back to this in a sense. So when would you cut bait? Let's say you're following Einhorn. You know, he's had X many bad years. At what point would you say, no, he's gotten off and you bail? That's the trouble. So there's two, two distinct parts of this. So there's that's the beauty of smart beta and quant strategies. You can look back, whatever, 10, 20, 100 years and say, this is what we expect for this strategy. This is what makes sense. With active managers, you're betting on the manager. And so he could be going through a divorce. He could be getting lazy. He could be starting a drug problem. He may just have been lucky in investing during a good, particularly good period. There's, 
it makes it so much harder with active managers that you're betting on their process. doesn't mean it's not impossible. I mean, we wrote a whole book on this topic, Invest with the House, which ironically is our highest reviewed book, but least purchased. Hmm. Or for whatever reason, who well, knows? Well, t- tying back to that question earlier about investing in what you know, given that there's so much more potential for things we don't know when following as a manager, as you just said, is he going through a divorce? Does he have some other thing going on? It presents a lot of murkiness in terms of that whole strategy because you don't know what's happening with any given manager. So is well, that, so is so that a, a questionable we, philosophy? I mean, so let's say you are picking active managers. There's about a dozen things you could do to put the odds in your favor. And Morningstar writes a lot about this. So, you know, one, select bottom quartile of fees, you know, B, invest in what Morningstar gives a parent company, you know, a, a bronze, a gold or silver rating, meaning they're, they tend to be shareholder friendly. Um, C, make sure he's active enough for it to make a difference. So if he owns 500 stocks, you probably don't want to allocate. So the active share needs to be high. You know, a number of these things you could check the boxes to come up with a list of probably decent funds. And then you have to be comfortable with the process. So, you know, say, look, these are the reasons I would sell this investment, which I think is good for any investment. If you make an allocation to an ETF, to an active manager, to a any investment, say, this is why I would sell this. So then when you're panicking, when it's down 50%, you pull up your piece of paper and say, is this one of the reasons I would sell? And if it's not, you probably shouldn't sell it. But if you make your list and one of them is, you know, I'm going to sell this manager if he gets to 10 billion in assets, then, you know, you should follow that methodology. And I think that's a reasonable one to do. But simply selling it because he does poorly is actually probably the opposite. If you still believe in the manager and the approach and his style, um, it's probably not a great reason to be selling it. Would you suggest diversifying managers in the same way you diversify assets? Yeah, of course. I mean, and we'll probably talk about this more in another podcast about the 13F stuff, but we look at about a dozen or 15 managers in there we like, like David Tepper. I think we talk about Einhorn and, you know, two of my favorites being Seth Klarman at Valpost, who's, he's in some, his stock picks are in like a 40% drawdown right now. Probably a great time to be allocating to his picks. But I like the ones that invest in names that are really different. You know, the stocks that, if they're just buying Google, Apple, and IBM, I'm probably not as interested as the ones that are buying stuff that no one's ever heard of, uh, typically because uh, they're names that are that are less trafficked. But we'll talk about that book in another episode, I imagine, or, th- or this one will end up taking a, another hour or two. All right. Let's uh, squeeze in a couple more questions here. Is following financial news programs a good method to discovering out-of-favor or dislike stocks? It seems like the financial media oftentimes pushes dislike stocks even further than they should go. Short answer is probably no. What are good resources? I mean, you know, look, I, I love going on CNBC and Fox and Bloomberg and chatting with my friends, but it's really hard to distill a very thoughtful conversation into 30 minute soundbite. And so are there resources for a stock picker out there? And Wes has done a few papers on this that shows that there is value in sites like some zero is one where people share ideas. Another one that Joel Greenblatt started called the Value Investors Club. I think you have to apply to that one with a investing idea. What are what are other good ones? You know, a lot of people do idea dinners. I mean, I think sorting through 13Fs is a good one. Seeing what is it Seth Klarman is buying as, a, as an initial screen and then diving into it. But as far as TV, there, uh, there's a few other newsletter type resources. I think do nice deep dives. Manual of Ideas is one we featured on the Idea Farm. Real Vision TV is is a recorded interview style video format that's kind of like the Idea Farm, but for videos. 
it's a little challenging for me to watch because it's kind of like, you know, I queue up a bunch of documentaries on my Netflix, but never watch them. Uh, so this is kind of the same category, but I think they're very a, a nice production, video production with a lot of good hedge fund managers like Kyle Bass and et cetera. And then some of the, the conferences I think are pretty useful to go to. You have the, like the Iris Zone, and we have a list of this on the Idea Farm website of about a dozen idea conferences to where you go and somebody presents like an idea. Problem for me with those is, they all sound good to me. I, I sit through 12 uh, presentations. I'm like, every one of those sounds good. Those are all good initial screens, but TV, it's, it's tough. I would say financial TV is tough. A lot of noise. The more in depth there, there's, and we'll add some other, I can't think of them off the top of my head, uh, but add some other resources on the uh, show notes as well. Do you, do you follow markets daily or given your sort of broader macro global asset allocation sort of mindset? Do you just steer away from that? You know, I, I follow them casually. I, I don't spend much. I mean, I, I read a lot, you know, but mostly what I'm reading tends to be research papers, long in depth quant research from the banks, from academia. That's more about process. You know, I'm not reading much out there that's like, hey, this is why it's time to buy wheat mm-hmm. or this is why you need to short Tesla. It, it's an interesting aside to me and it's a curiosity, but really what I'm trying to build are sustainable processes that, you know, will work in any market environment or fit together as pieces of a puzzle. And so always trying to think of ways to improve the methodology. So if someone there's out talking about some new factor or some idea or concept or trading system, I'll take much more notice. But the actual day-to-day media is much more concerned with, you know, whatever geopolitical thing is going on and particularly what stocks are moving a lot. None of that goes into my only time I end up watching CNBC is usually when I'm traveling and it happens, I put it on a, in a hotel room. I don't watch it on my day to day or, you know, in the office. The office, the TV is usually sports, if anything. All right. Last question here. Something kind of uh, different, a little bit more theoretical in nature. What's the problem you see in the world that's solvable, but not by you? A little existential there for you. God, that's like most problems. <laughs> I don't think I could solve most of them. You know, I, I keep a I keep a Word doc on my computer of crazy ideas. And so I have about a dozen, some of which are financial. We actually used to do blog posts. I should probably update it. We used to do one called $5 million ideas in fintech. And all of them have been done to varying degrees at this point, which is pretty cool. There's, so there's a lot of things I wish someone would do that I don't want to do. I'll give you a couple right now. So if someone wants to do these, contact me. I would love to let's see them happen. I would love to see someone write it. This would be a fun book to write is, is to ask that question or a variant of that question being basically like how to make, what's your best idea right now? Or how do you make the world a better place? Some, some form of that question and go ask 50, you know, leading scientists, politicians, whatever, go out and, and say, Hey, you got a thousand words. Answers. That'd be a fun book to write. I think someone should do that. I think another fun book to write would be, you know, how they do the, you see them at the airports all the time, the top science writing of 2015. Mm-hmm. So I think someone should do that for investing. Uh, you know, put out the 20 best investing articles of the last year. People would love to read that because, again, it takes a step back and it's not what's the, the news item of the week from CNBC, but what's the best idea that's happened out there. There's a few other that I consistently rant about. I would love to see a Yelp for financial planners. You can't really do it because it's, because the, the model breaks down because the planners can't pay to have testimonials or reviews. So you'd have to figure out a different monetization engine. You know, the, the Yelp for podcasts, that drives me nuts that I was actually was emailing with Libsyn, who hosts a bunch of our 
podcast and said, you know, why don't you guys open up the API? And they said, well, we can't do that because, you know, it's confidential, yada, yada. And they also said, well, because a lot of people inflate their numbers too, which was interesting. But they said, yeah. you know, I said, look, because I would love to. The problem is if I go to my buddy Covell's podcast and he's got 500 episodes, I said, where do I even start? I either start at the beginning or start at the end. But, you know, no offense, Mike, but I'm sure 100 of those aren't worth listening to or 200 or three, you know, and then there's got to be 20 where he's probably like, these are incredible, but there's no way to look that up. And so the the owner of the data, the apples of the world, the overcast of the world, don't publish the statistics. I don't know why, but I wish they did. I could probably go on for twenty more minutes on this on this topic of of crazy ideas, but that that'll probably be a different a different podcast coming up. All right, I said that was the last question, but let's do one final one right now, just to tie it back to investing and what potential listeners can uh, do right now. What's your ideal portfolio right now with what's available? You know, I publish my portfolio every year and this one, I think the title of this one's was called take lots of risk or none at all. And so my portfolio, I own a hundred percent of our ETFs in, in our ETFs and the landscape I give to people is I say, look, what's right for me may not be right for you, whatever. And I do it roughly in line with the Trinity portfolio. So roughly half is in buy and hold investments and with heavy, have very heavy tilts towards things that I think are cheap or that the, the fund will systematically invest in things that are cheap. So foreign stocks, for example. And the other half of the portfolio, my personality is in trend following type of investments. But I often tell people too, I say, look, you know, I was having a conversation on a chairlift with a buddy and we were talking about kind of portfolios and trading and investing. And he said, I said, most of my net worth eventually will probably be dominated by ownership in Cambria. And then in a handful of private businesses, our family farm as well. And then, you know, the portfolio is down the list. So whether that portfolio returns 15% a year or two is probably not going to be the major part of my, my investing returns long term. So his point was, he says, why take any risk at all with that? Which I thought was an interesting perspective because it goes to show just how much you could come up with the same equation that goes into an online questionnaire and spit out a totally different answer based on the person. Because there's many people that would answer that say, yeah, you should take no risk at all with this portfolio. And there's other people that say, no, because you have these other investments, you can take a ton of risk. That's swing for the fences. Yeah. And so, and so, but I think it just comes down to what you're comfortable with. I would struggle a lot with large drawdowns. I would struggle a lot with just not doing anything in a bear market. So I need the trend following component, but I also know that value works over long periods. So I like allocating to things that are really cheap. So I publish mine every year. I'll have to update it here in a few weeks because we have some big announcements coming up. But in general, you can Google my portfolio 2016. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes and see exactly to the percent what I own. You mentioned uh, a lot of your net worth is potentially tied up in private businesses. I'm curious if that sounds, I mean, to me, it sounds like venture capital. And that to me sounds a lot riskier. No, so for me, the, the vast majority is businesses that I control. So Cambria, okay. the idea farm or businesses I'm involved with, and then the farm. But, you know, I dabble in private markets just because I find it very interesting, but is a very minor chunk of the overall portfolio. I'm very curious about it. So I've made about a dozen private investments. And there's about half a dozen of these sites that you can use 
you know, whether it's for secondary liquidity, like equities in, AngelList is the most famous. The biggest problem I have with, with most of them is they charge a lot of, of fees. Equities in is decent. I think it charges a 5% fee. And there's about a half dozen of these angel ones that, but the problem is they'll charge like a three or 5% transaction fee and then like 10 to 25% carry, which, you know, if an investment successful is a huge chunk. Mm-hmm. And so I expect those to come down over time because it's a pretty big number, but I, I think it's a fascinating area because you can invest in, you know, early stage companies. And we, we, you know, we did a, we did a crowdfund round a few years ago and probably may do another, but that, would you say the average allocation? No, what's, what's the average return of capital in that? Well, time length. Here's another benefit. And I think I credit Tim Ferriss talking about this. He says the beauty of a private investment is you're stuck with it. There's no liquidity for that. So they get bought, they go bankrupt, they get sold, they IPO. That's about it. Or they start spinning out dividends and cash flow, which is unlikely. So you're in bed with that company for the next 10 years. You tend to, I think a lot of people would be a little more thoughtful or maybe not, but it, but it also keeps you from bad behaving where you would sell it if it went down 10 or 20% or whatnot. So, you know, those of you expect to own for 10 years, you know, I, I think we're probably at a point in the cycle where They've come off the really ridiculous valuations, but you still see a lot that are trading at crazy valuations. So for the the cheap bastard in me, that's tough. But there's some ideas out there I think that that are pretty fun and, and worth funding. But again, it's it's more of a kind of what you talked about, where the majority of your money is quote safe, or you kind of know this asset allocation portfolio, the land, the private companies, diversification. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the play allocation for me. Yeah. And I think it's fun, but it's, and it, it maybe it becomes a bigger allocation, but for now it's a, it's mostly just a curiosity. The private investment could be a fun topic for a uh, future podcast, but, yeah. re- but really quick. Just- that's, a, that's, a, that's another idea that I think someone should do. And we have one friend that's starting to do it, which is a either newsletter or podcast would be good too about the the best because there's not enough research that's going on so if you want information on these private companies there's nothing out there you know if you want to go uh invest in this new app and you try to get their revenue or information on the company i mean forget about it because they're not required to disclose anything so i would love to see a small investment bank or a research shop you probably need half a dozen people to do it they would be covering these five or six platforms and saying hey look i think x investment this is a buy this month put in a thousand dollars i think why investment you should pass because the founder is an asshole. I think C, you, you know, here's another one that's interesting and track a lot of these deals. You, so you see a couple sites out there that do some of the analytics around the private investing. You don't see a lot of people making buy, sell, hold recommendations. The one problem is the platforms don't like you to talk about them or the valuations because it could run afoul some solicitation rules. So it need to be a private newsletter, which is fine. So the podcast maybe could talk about them, but you know, I think that would be a really another interesting business opportunity someone should do. Do you have any success stories so far you can share? I mean, I, I've literally just started this in the last few years and like one for one of the, you know, ones, <laughs> ones that have done anything. And that was our buddy Howard Lindsden, who, you know, many listeners will be familiar with. He's a very old school angel investor. I, I joined him in on a deal and, you know, I think it got bought out for a 20% premium. So, hey, that's that's better than uh, the opposite. So, but in general, no, it's, it's very early. My old colleague from... Uh, former former job used to say that he um 
as a 100% rate and with investing in venture capital. He's lost money on every deal. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, the, the famous Kreft study we talked about in one of our books, which is that people spend vastly more time researching a TV or, you know, a vacation than they do on any of their investments. I mean, I can imagine so many doctors and engineers and everyone else going on to these sites and be like, yeah, I'll just toss five grand into this company, having spent like five minutes researching mm-hmm. it, right? But there's a handful if you start to do due diligence where you could probably get them early in their growth stage. And this is where probably a, a really serious Peter Lynch style investor would add value. And, you know, if you're investing in companies with market caps of 5 million or 10 million, you can really get some of the potential, you know, 10, 100 baggers. Whereas public markets, you know, the, the small caps usually start at 200 million and up. And, uh, but who, who knows? Let's check. We'll check, check back in five years and see if my, 100% success rate is is everything going bankrupt as well. <laughs> Sounds good. We're at 45 minutes. Let's wrap it up. Good, man. We got it. How many questions do we do? About seven? At least. Way yeah. better than our success rate last time. All right. Look, you guys keep sending in the questions. We'll keep doing these answers. If we, if we get a consistent stream, we may even start doing this weekly. So uh, thanks for taking the time to listen. If you got the feedback questions or Q&A, send them over. Feedback at themebfabershow.com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episode links at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. You can always subscribe to uh, the show on iTunes. And remember, if you're enjoying or hating or totally agnostic the podcast, go on iTunes, leave us a review. It would mean a lot. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>